Friends, this is your host Palm Vale welcoming you to this special series of short interviews with scientists from Stanford University. As a scientist myself, part of the job is to present my research to others in the field, and it's for that reason I found myself on an all-expenses-paid trip to San Diego for the annual experimental biology meeting. Sucks to be me, I know. Coincidentally though, this happened to fall during the week of our Taste of Science Festival. So not only did I catch events in San Diego, but I travelled up to the Bay Area to get double my dose. So it was on a gloriously sunny day that I hung out on the Stanford campus to record these episodes. First up is the Portuguese protein scientist, João Rodriguez. So welcome everybody to another episode of our Two Scientists podcast. Our guest today is a researcher at Stanford University and his name is Joao Rodriguez. How are you doing? Hey, I'm doing good. Thank you. Very good. Um, so I happened to be here for a meeting and I swung by San Francisco because I wanted to see our Taste of Science events. And actually you were a speaker last night, were you not? Yeah, I was uh, speed dating apparently. <laughs> Yes, and how did that go? Uh, it went well. I went home well alone, but still. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it wasn't that kind of speed dating. No, not at all. Not the at dating all. was definitely in air quotes. Yeah, although I did get a like, phone number asked, so it was not so Woo! bad. Yeah. Well, Some guy wanted to come and check the lab. So. Oh, boo. Yeah, boo, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so, before we go on, why don't you tell me a little bit about how you got inspired to get into science and why you ended up in the particular research field that you're in? Yeah, well, it's that's uh, a long story. Um, when I was a kid, I remember being like six or seven, and I used to play with a friend of mine at, you know, being a scientist or being a chemist. We had like all these uh, chemistry kits, which you could mix reagents and you know this kind of stuff. Uh -huh. uh, we were also we um, we both studied well studied. We were growing up in a Catholic school, and we used to go around in scientific exhibits and point out all the scientific errors that they had. So oh, when they wow. had like yeah, yeah, we were like pretty nerds when we were little <laughs> kids. Yeah, they, they loved us. The nuns loved us. So, <laughs> so basically, uh, you know, eventually we grew up. And then actually I met this friend again in college uh, and when we were both studying biochemistry for mm -hmm. undergrad. And then, um, yeah, I mean, at some point I realized that actually working in a lab, in a wet lab, as people imagine the scientist, is actually, you know, long hours and, you know, weekends involved and... It Wants actually requires, that. yeah, and actually requires a lot of, you know, skill and dedication. So I was also always a bit fascinated by computers and how they work. So I thought, okay, I could bridge kind of both worlds. So I got into computational biology, mm -hmm. which at the time actually didn't really exist where I was studying, but uh, I managed to find my way in. So very good. Yeah. And so now you're at Stanford, and you're working where? Yeah, so I work at the Department of Structural Biology, mm -hmm. and I work um, with Professor Michael Levitt. So he got the Nobel Prize in Chemistry in 2013 for essentially Ooh. developing computational structural biology. Yep. So, yeah, so he's one of the pioneers in the field and generally great person to work with and to be with. So That's really cool. Yeah. That's some scientific royalty right there. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, you should check his, uh, his, his you know, pedigree. It's, you know, Cambridge educated, you know, Perutz, Crick, all these people. So he's the one with the pedigree. We are just like, you know, like parasites just latching <laughs> onto him. <laughs> well, at least you're honest. <laughs> yeah, totally. Always. <laughs> so generally when we think about 
a cell. For anybody who's done any kind of high school biology, they're picturing this like blob with a yeah. membrane and maybe the nucleus labeled and yeah. maybe some like mitochondria in there. And actually, even as a biologist, I think it took me the longest time to realize that it's not just like this big sack of fluid, that everything is packed into yeah. there. Yeah. So tell me how it is that you work on a system like that, because the point of your research is to kind of study how what happens when these things bump into each other, when things go wrong. Yeah. So actually, that's that's a pretty fair point. So even among scientists, um, people tend to think of the cell as this kind of, yeah, like water balloon with some things floating around when in reality it's a very packed water balloon mm -hmm. and things are constantly bumping into each other. And yeah. these things are, they can be proteins, they can be DNA, they can be RNA, they can be lipids, they can be a lot of things. Um, so what we do is because it's really hard to get a good picture, like literally a picture yeah. of how these things look like, um, we create computer models to try and understand how in particular proteins move around in the mm -hmm. cell um, and how they interact with each other and yeah. these interactions why the interactions it's essentially because proteins very rarely work on their own so it's when they talk to other proteins this is where the action is actually happening in the cell uh-huh so yeah i guess another thing we should probably explain is the fact that uh, for a lot of people who aren't biologists, maybe the, the word protein has a different connotation. Yeah, yeah. So the thing that you get in your diet, what yeah. is a protein to you? Yeah, so that was something that I started yesterday when I was doing the speed dating. I was selling proteins are more than just, you know, the little powder you mix when you go to the gym. Um, so when people think of a cell and think of molecules, they tend to think of DNA as being kind of, you know, the overlord. Mm -hmm. of the cell which is kind of true but yep. the truth is that it's this very lazy overlord and <laughs> the only it's the, the molecules that actually do work yeah. are mostly proteins so proteins essentially are these very long um like necklace beads let's put it that way of of amino acids so yeah. each bead in a necklace is going to be an amino acid and there are these very long strings uh, say like 100, 200, 300, some of them are like several thousand amino acids long. Mm -hmm. And so it's just like a necklace. So if you drop a necklace or, you know, any wire on the floor, it's not going to be straight. It's going to adopt like a certain shape. Yep. And this is what we study is like the shape that proteins adopt because mm -hmm. this is important to the function that they actually perform in the cell. Yep. Of course, so. because if you just have a long chain of something, it's probably not going to do very much. And in most of biology, yeah. you need these things to fit together very specifically. Yeah. Yeah. So we actually have some 3D models, which are <laughs> utterly meaningless for an audio recording. But if you check our pictures, you'll be able to see what they look like. <laughs> so tell us what these things actually are. So this were actually built for Taste of Science, mm -hmm. the two of them. Um, we are lucky enough at Stanford to have a 3D printing lab where anybody can just go and 3D print whatever they want. Mm -hmm. And it's really cheap. So we so protein structures can be determined by several methods. Um, and there's a public database that you can just access and download these structures and you can just view them on your computer, on your phone. Yep. Um, so we, we got a few structures and we just 3D printed them. And so one of them, this little green one, is a GPCR or a G-protein coupled receptor. And this specific one is called CCR5 or chemokine receptor 5. And it sits at the membrane of your cells. And its natural function is actually to tell immune system cells where to go mm -hmm. so to find find sites of inflammation and tell you like go to the inflammation site 
um, but it's also hijacked by HIV to get in the cell. Uh -huh. So it's a very important drug target in a way because it's for HIV therapeutics. This is one of the targets you want to block. So this is one one thing. And then the other one, this is always funny. So it's so I know people that are hearing, they cannot see it, but it's just a ball. Yep. Um, it looks like a golf ball with bigger dimples. Exactly. It looks like a golf ball with little dimples. And this is actually an atomic structure of Zika virus. Uh -huh. So the capsid of Zika okay. virus, which we showed it because we went to the Academy of Sciences and we had, I thought the theme was on um, symmetry and shapes in nature. Mm -hmm. And it's beautiful to see that a lot of the structures that we work with, especially viruses, they are nearly spherical for example so mm -hmm. nature really tries to make things very efficient yep and it's beautiful to when you actually 3d print them i mean this it's a sphere so this is what they are they're both actually atomic structures so each little bump that you see it's an atom just uh -huh. magnified like you know a few billion times yeah 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 um and yeah this is how they look like if you just zoom in and look at them this is how a protein and a virus capsule would look like that's very cool so this is an example of something that's very physical and solid, but you guys, you obviously have to plug something into a computer in order to get the model or the shape of the protein yeah. that you're interested in. Yeah. How on earth do you do that? Um, so actually the rules are quite simple, I gotta say. So if you go back to the analogy of the necklace, in a necklace, in the same way, you know, beads are at a certain distance from one another. Mm -hmm. So in nature, atoms, when they bond, they are at certain distances from one another. And we know from, you know, years and years of experiments, more or less what the average distance between atoms are, different mm -hmm. types. So a carbon will be always at a certain distance from another carbon, will be at a slightly different distance from an oxygen, for example. So using this kind of information, so distances, angles between three atoms, angles between four atoms as mm -hmm. well. Um, and also properties like the charge of the atom. So, you know, like positives, positive charges repel each other and yep. opposite charges attract. So knowing these very simple rules, if you just put them in a computer, um, you can have some basic equations just to calculate attraction and repulsion between these things. Mm -hmm. And if you just let the system, we say, evolve over time, so you do a simulation over time with these properties, then you actually see that these shapes start showing up. Mm -hmm. So we can, we usually actually, it's very hard to get one of like a proper protein fold or a correct one right. by using these principles on their own. So we have other techniques to do this, but in general, the simulations and models are governed by these ground rules. Mm -hmm. So at the end, my, my boss likes to call them the dead physicist potentials <laughs> because all these rules, although this seems like super, you know, state of the art research, most of the rules are, you know, a hundred, 200 years mm -hmm. old. So yeah. Well, that's very cool that you get to kind of give it a modern spin. Yeah, yeah, definitely, yeah. But does that mean then you work a lot with biologists and chemists, for example, in order to understand what the protein does in real life? Or Yeah, so one of the, I'd say, downsides of working in a more theoretical field is that people are always going to question your results because mm -hmm. at the end of the day, they are just models. And models always will, will always need validation. Yep. So... We usually tend to work with experimental researchers mm -hmm. to validate our models. Yep. But I think the best, the best possible scenario is when they have questions and they come to us and they ask us, you know, can you help us, you know, solve this problem? Because mm -hmm. we have, it's very common, for example, they only have bits of the puzzle and our models can help either 
you know, build the whole puzzle yep. or at least help them organize where the pieces actually fall, yep. even if they're still missing pieces. Um, and then we kind it's, it's, it's a conversation, it's a dialogue. Yep. And this, this is the best way of actually collaborating with experimental people. So, but we, I mean, at least I like to work a lot closely with experimental people mm -hmm. because it's, I mean, it's, you know, it's, you can go back and forth. They can yep. validate what you're doing. You get ideas from what they are doing. So mm -hmm. it's, it's science at its, I'd say, best yep. in a way. You well, can also do this, like, you know, closed in your ivory tower somewhere, but then it's going to have much less impact as well. So Yes. I mean, it's one thing to say you're closed in an ivory tower and then for each one of those chambers to also be locked. If researchers don't speak to each other, how do you make major breakthroughs? Yeah. Um, so actually, we've, we've been working with someone who does something very similar for one of our proteins. And yeah. it's very cool because the models at the end of it, we're, we're trying to look at one very specific area and we're trying to understand why there are other chemicals to, that bind to that protein in that area. And um, yeah, you have this beautiful kind of stick model of what the protein looks like all yeah. zoomed up. Yeah. Um, and yeah, it was a huge help to us to say, okay, this is, this is what we think is happening yeah. in that protein. Yeah. So we, I think one of the good things of these models is that usually they give you, or give researchers kind of a three-dimensional view mm -hmm. of their yeah. actual molecules that they're working with. Yeah. Because sometimes people work you know, with the protein and they know the name of the protein, but they actu never actually looked at it. And yep. then sometimes just by looking at it, you can kind of understand, for example, how it functions, why it mm -hmm. functions the way it functions. Yep. And there are some, you know, subtle insights that you can get just by looking at the shape. Yep. So that's actually very helpful. Just sometimes people just come and say, can you get a model of this? And they just don't ask for anything else, but just a picture. Mm -hmm. And that's very helpful. Yep. So, yeah. Very cool. So David is kind of not here with us today because he refrained from coming out to San Francisco with me. Um, <laughs> He's missing the nice sweater. <laughs> he is. He is. Although apparently it's still nice in Tampa yet, so, which is weird. And he says, <laughs> he always likes to ask something quite silly. So mm -hmm. he says, what are the biggest misconceptions um, other people have when you introduce yourself as a computational structural biologist at a party? Well, actually, I... Usually I just say, when people ask what I do, I say, I'm a biologist. Uh -huh. And then people say, yeah, okay, which kind of biologist? And well, a structural biologist. And people say, okay, so what kind of structural biologist? Oh, I do. And then I actually say the three words. But often the one that gives, I guess, the most, um, it raises the most questions is when I say, um, I do protein models. Mm -hmm. And people just fixate on the word models. Yep. And then for some reason, they think that I actually either model myself or <laughs> I do some sort of like, shooting for models it, this is really funny it happened a couple of times already um so that's the biggest misconception but i think when you say computational structural biology people usually have no idea what you're talking mm -hmm. about so you have to deconstruct the whole thing so that's usually i say biologist yeah and that's you know i say well i study how proteins function and you know structure and then i use a computer and mm -hmm. that's that's how i leave it usually yeah so and that's enough to kill the conversation. That's enough to kill the conversation <laughs> and ask, you know, so what do you do? And then usually their answer is way more interesting than... <laughs> yeah. I'm sure that's not true. Yeah. But this is, this is part of why we do science communication is to try and find the ideal way. Like I've seen in multiple places now, the idea that you have this five minute, not elevated pitch, but you have a dinner table pitch. Yeah. Um, so that's a very cute idea, I think. Yeah. I'm not sure I'd do any better though. <laughs> um, so you're talking about the, the Zika virus here and um, the fact that this other protein is kind of involved in HIV. 
Mm-hmm. Are there other diseases that your your kind of your models are useful for at the end of it? Are there specific ones that you study? Uh, well, so in the lab here, we do, and in the lab where I did my PhD actually in the Netherlands, uh, we do mostly method development. Mm-hmm. So in the end, we end up working with very different systems just because we want our methods to work. Right. But sometimes you're lucky enough that somebody comes and asks a nice question. Mm-hmm. So I, ha- I happen to have this CCR5 model because we actually just got a structure out in collaboration with the group in Israel. Um, well, they did most of the work actually. We just contributed very, very little at the end. Mm-hmm. Um, and the idea was exactly to get a model of how this CCR5 binds to its native ligand, which is called CCL5. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, so there is work on this, and I have some other work ongoing at the moment also on trying to understand more about this chemokine chemokine receptor interactions because it's they're extremely interesting systems. Mm-hmm. What's um, a chemokine? So a chemokine is this, it's a small protein that basically exists outside the cell. Mm-hmm. And I mean, they have a lot of functions, but the function that we are interested in is they basically, when they bind to these receptors, they signal the cell to move towards that region mm-hmm. of space, right? Yeah. So they're responsible for chemotaxis, so cell movements in, you know, along the gradient of chemicals. Yeah. Um, so... Yeah, this is one project that we have, that I have, that is like, I guess, the most, I'd say, less abstract uh-huh. one. So other than that, we uh, we are doing some work with virtual reality as well. So, I mean, us and a lot of other people, because this is like the new kid on the block. Everybody wants to play with virtual reality. Oh, I was just at um, the experimental biology meeting and yeah. you could see people playing with these things. And I think yeah. they were also looking at three-dimensional models of... The idea that you can kind of be in this alternate universe where yeah. you can play with yeah. these things is yeah. really cool. Yeah. So, and we, we have that because we think, at least I think, that uh, you know, computers are really good at number crunching, mm-hmm. but we are much better at figuring out patterns in space. I mean, yeah. this, this is this is not new. This is like, you know, people know this for a long time. Um, so we have like a little game where you can just, you know, like play with a protein and actually play with two proteins and see how they actually interact with each other. So basically do the the modeling that we usually do in the computer, but people do it themselves. So we usually give it to, like when you have these states of science events, like mm-hmm. we've done a couple of times. And for example, surprisingly, kids are really good at finding these things. Uh-huh. So like three-year-olds, four-year-olds, you just put the goggles on and tell them like, you know, yellow must match green and there they go. And then they're really happy doing this. So it's like, it's a, it's a very rewarding actually uh, experience to do this. So that actually sounds very close to another thing that David mentioned to me, which no. was, and I didn't realize this existed, is a, a citizen science program called Foldit. Foldit, yeah. This? yeah. Yeah, I know this, I know it. That yeah. sounds amazing. Explain what that is. So Foldit is a program developed by researchers in Washington. Mm-hmm. So it's David Baker and I'm, I'm sorry, I cannot remember the name of the, actually the, it's a computer science professor that actually did probably most of the programming. Uh-huh. Um, and they, so David Baker is, Super well known for being one of the top computational biology uh, biologists, uh, especially like in structure prediction and simulations. Mm-hmm. Um, and so what they what they figured out a long time ago is that computers basically are very good at number crunching, but sometimes they so they they have to do this exhaustive kind of search mm-hmm. of space. So you know when a protein wants to fold, like they have to try all combinations. Yep. And humans are much better at finding these little shortcuts and say, well. You know, if I have a knob and I have a hole, of course the knob goes in the hole. I mean, this this is a very... B- I know, I know. <laughs> I was trying to use this... Nice analogy. Yeah, yeah, but it is... We'll go it with is, that. 
we actually, you know, there, this is actually scientific uh, terminology, mm -hmm. I gotta say. So, so they basically wrote a computer game mm -hmm. where, so players can, they, they're given a, a partially folded protein structure and they are asked to either refine it, so yep. to, you know, try to find like the most optimal structure mm -hmm. and this is based on a certain score. Um, and they actually found out that people are really good at this. So people are sometimes much better than the computer because you just you look at something at the shape and mm -hmm. our special reasoning is, is just really good. Yep. So we can figure out where things fit, where things go. And so they've they've had incredible success, not only as a game, but you know, in actual solving problems in science where otherwise it would be impossible to solve because there were no structures, computers yep. could not work on them. So they gave it to people and people came up with solutions that ended up, you know, being published in, yeah. you know, really good journals and making really good discoveries. This so is amazing. Folit is, was, was an amazing invention. Yeah. So, yeah. And it's, I suppose it teaches the people who are playing the game a little bit about how science works, or at least that specific field of science. Yeah, so it teaches people, they made a really good job at abstracting a lot of these concepts of charges and interactions and atoms. So they have little metaphors, like if you have two atoms very close to each other, they'll have mm -hmm. these little um, kind of spiky balls mm -hmm. showing up in between that indicates yeah. that they're too close. Uh -huh. So they have these little indicators when things are going wrong or when things are going right, they have these little like, you know, sparkles coming up. So <laughs> people will very quickly learn some basic patterns in yeah. chemistry that you know there are real rules for this but they just people don't know the rules they just say you know like uh, red likes blue so we're always going to put red against blue yep. so and this is enough for people to actually solve you know protein structures it's 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 amazing i mean from a science communication point of view from a real you know scientific mm -hmm. breakthrough chemistry point of view this was wow i think this wow like everybody in the field people were really really happy about it yeah so so i think we again will put the link on our website, but I believe if you just Google fold it and um, probably not much else, yeah. uh, this little game will come up and yeah. you can contribute yourself to science. Yeah. And if I may make a, another plug, there yeah. is there's a similar game called Udoc. Mm -hmm. So and so fold it. You'll take you'll have one structure, and your goal is to actually fold it into yep. a real you know structure. Udoc, you have two proteins, and your mm -hmm. goal is to find how they interact with each other. Uh huh. So you can also try. It's also for free. Okay. It's a French game. I think the URL is like u like udoc.fr. Yep. Okay. And so they are both really fun games. We actually we have them both. When we do the Taste of Science, we usually do the VR stuff, mm -hmm. and then we have either Folded or Udoc because people really like it. That's so. really cool. So people basically should come out to Taste of Science in San Francisco or the Bay Area. Yeah. Uh, and yes, they should look up fold it and you doc um, on that note we would like to say thank you for taking time out of your your busy scientific schedule I'm <laughs> sure to come and speak to us well, it's always pleasant to you know talk to people especially on a sunny day like this yeah absolutely so. and um, yeah good luck with your stuff thank you good luck as well thank you organization here they organized this epic failure events for Stanford postdocs um, and the goal was to have people share you know epic failures in their career 
in general. So, and then when I started thinking about it, I actually thought, oh, I actually have quite a few. <laughs> so, but I guess the, what people like the most, which I don't consider it particularly funny, but um, so I have six names. I have two first names and four last names. So, and when, <laughs> when I go to the, to, to the Netherlands to study, to do my master's, they, uh, when I register, you know, I put the name that's in my passports. It's my full name. And when they got it, they apparently the, the the norm is they will take your two first names, just put the initials, and then put your last name, you know, and then at, and then the university dot nl. So when they got my six names, they didn't know what to do with it. So they just literally put all six names together. So it's like you know, 40 character long email address at students dot uu dot nl. So this is my official email address for two years of studying. So of course I thought, okay, nobody's gonna take me seriously when I email them like this. So after my first year of masters, uh, I could choose to go somewhere to do a second internship, a small internship. And I asked my supervisor at the time, I said, you know, where should I go? I'd like to go to the US. And he said, well, you know, there are these people and these people, so, you know, why don't you just try emailing them? And I emailed so Professor Michael Levitt here at Stanford. Uh, and I guess I sent the email from my, you know, very long official email address. And now I know that he's, he's a really busy person. So he will reply to emails, like to people of the lab and friends and stuff. But like, he gets so many requests from other people that it's really rare to get his attention. So I was extremely surprised when a few days later I got a reply where he basically said, you have a really funny name. So, and that, that's how the conversation actually got started. So that's how I actually got to talk to him and then to ask him for an internship at Stanford for my master's to actually come to Stanford and then to actually now be here doing my postdoc because I met him back then. So I think I have to go like, you know, my mom and my dad for having this embarrassingly, embarrassingly long name and apparently got me places. For an episode on protein shapes, the track you're listening to seems rather aptly named. Into and Over has been kindly provided by The 10,000 Ways. Keep listening since we'll be featuring their work some more in the next two recordings. If you enjoyed this episode, remember to head to iTunes and give us a rating and a review. Help others to find us in their search for fun science podcasts.
it's what I said yesterday in my five minutes. I said, look, most of these people work in a lab and you know, this was a choice that I had to make very early on in my career. Do you want weekends or not? 